0: Currently, haparins and or DOACs are safe and efficient at treating thrombosis in cancer patients. However, what about primary thromboprophylaxis in cancer patients? Keep listening to find out. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode from Core2Ed Independent Medical Education. The podcast is supported by an independent educational grant from Beatrice. This podcast series focuses on thrombosis in various clinical conditions and consists of four episodes. In the second episode, experts discuss the connection between thrombosis and cancer. You will hear internationally renowned experts, Professor Dimitrios Tsakiris and Dr. Lars Esmis discuss these matters and provide their opinion on how to manage both diseases simultaneously.
1: Good morning, everybody. My name is Dimitrios Tsakiris, and I'm a hematologist from the University of Basel in Switzerland, specialized in clinical and diagnostic hemostasis. I'm delighted to share with you today a podcast on the subject of cancer-associated thrombosis. Myself and my discussion partner, Dr. Asmis, are delighted to share that with you, And we think it is important for uh, listeners because the podcast can help you stratify patients concerning the risk for thrombosis on the background of a cancer disease and uh, help you choose the optimal treatment in that situation. But let me first invite uh, in the discussion, Dr. Asmis. He's also a hematologist and he's also specialized in hemostasis. Dr. Asmis, could you? Tell us, please, a few words about uh, your field of interest. Good morning,
2: Dimitrios. Yes, my name is Lars Asmus. I'm affiliated with the University of Zurich. I work in private practice as a hematologist specializing in, in coagulation. I have been interested in cancer and thrombosis for, for many years. We did some research projects many years ago on endothelial cells expressing tissue factor and how that can be
1: mitigated Thank you, Lars, for that introduction. Let us start the discussion. When we talk about cancer-associated thrombosis, it is inevitable not to mention the reason why uh, this thrombotic risk exists. And it is because the tumor uh, acts different in uh, these patients. We distinguish mainly two models of the risk for thrombosis. The cancer cells... have the ability to produce either tissue factor or tissue factor like substances or procoagulants, which can uh, activate hemostasis and uh, trigger thrombosis. And uh, this can be uh, multifactorial, but uh, it is the tumor type that uh, drives uh, the risk concerning its intensity. It is estimated that uh, cancer patients have a relative risk about five to six times higher than non-cancer patients to get a thrombotic event. But depending on the tumor type, this risk can be even more variable. Lars, could you tell us please a few details on the tumor types and the risk for thrombosis? Which one is more, uh, more dangerous than the other, for example?
2: Well, you you mentioned the pathophysiology with cancer procoagulant substances that can be produced by tumors, and you mentioned also the tumors that either by themselves can express tissue factors or where the human body reacting to the tumor will lead to ectopic expression of tissue factors, for instance, on endothelial cells, the project I, I mentioned before adenocarcinomas are known to produce cancer procoagulant substances. Almost all tumors can lead to so-called microvesical production. These are subcellular fragments of tumor cells which can circulate, but also the, the body in reaction to the tumor can lead to production of endothelial or platelet microvesicles. So there's a multitude of of mechanisms that are active. We know that uh, slime-producing adenocarcinomas are highly procoagulant. We know that, for instance, hematologic cancers by the associated cytokines can be incredibly procoagulant. I'm not aware of a hit list which tumor does what uh, the best, but these various mechanisms can interact and they can certainly be present at the same time.
1: That is correct. I mean, 20 years ago, we didn't know so much about the multitude of these uh, reasons and causes uh, for thrombosis. Concerning the tumor types, there are some lists in the literature which state brain tumors or pancreatic tumors or ovarian tumors are more prone to cause thrombosis uh, than others. But this is uh, also, as you mentioned, patient-relevant and patient-dependent. But do you think the genetic background of the patient plays a role? When we talk about thrombosis, the first thing that comes in my mind uh, as a hematologist is heritable thrombophilia. Do you think that uh, is an additional burden or the tumor type uh, overrides the risk through the thrombophilia genetic background.
2: In preparation for this webinar, I found a paper which is in print right now from the Wells Group from Canada, and they looked at classic risk factors and their interaction also with hereditary thrombophilia, and they found that amongst the classic thrombophilic risk factor was only factor V Leiden, which interacted with their model uh, in increasing the VTE risk or the cancer-associated thrombosis risk relevantly. Next to factor V Leiden, there were the people with the non-blood group O that had an increased risk. And these factors are not only additive, but they're more multiplicative in a a simplified version.
1: That means, uh, depending on the medical history of the patient, we can take investigation of thrombophilia into consideration and choose wisely whether we need it or uh, we don't. But let me go to the more attractive part of uh, our discussion, which is treatment. Once thrombosis is uh, present, you need to treat it. And treating it is a is, let's say, a complex action because uh, these patients are not the same ones without cancer uh, having a thrombosis. Um, Now, the first uh, issue that I would like to discuss is the availability of uh, tools that we have to predict or stratify the risk for thrombosis and categorize patients in thrombotic or more thrombotic or less thrombotic. I have found in the literature uh, about seven or eight uh, different uh, published scores which handle prediction of uh, the risk for thrombosis. But uh, only few of them, for example, the Corona score, the Vienna score, the Babinger score, are prospectively validated in clinical studies. Uh, What is your experience on the use of scores, first? And second, uh, do you have a preference? concerning
2: a score? Well, I think there are several scores that have been validated, as you have uh, mentioned. Depending on which study you tend to want to go to, you can argue that the Corona score is validated. You can argue that the Vienna score is validated and also, for instance, that the Protect score is validated. But again, this is not an, an exclusive list. I have some problems with these scores or I prefer not to only use a score in in assessing the risk and I will come back to that in a second these scores they tend to have variables that are used to assess the risk that either are not available in in regular medicine for instance the Vienna score has p selectin as a parameter That's great in a research setting, but we don't get that on a daily basis in in any clinical laboratory. The uh, CORANA score actually only includes one known validated predictive VTE risk factors, the body mass index. The other parameters like platelet count, like the tumor type and the pre-chemotherapy hemoglobin levels, those are not classic VTE risk factors that are included in there. So yes, on a statistical level that may work, but as an only feature, I tend to say that is, is of limited value. So my conclusion is that I use the clinical assessment or my estimation of the basal VTE risk, and in that I look at patient age, patient body mass index, patient previous history of VTE, family history of VTE, if known thrombophilic conditions, and I try to integrate that into the the entire equation. So, I try to combine a known risk score with clinical or experience-based assessment.
1: Yes, thank you. For that, but still, some score, for example, the Corona score has come into the guidelines concerning indication for treatment in outpatients with cancer and chemotherapy. Now, here, would you like to comment a little bit? Is there a difference between a hospitalized cancer patient and an ambulatory outpatient? Why do we have clear guidelines, clear indications for treatment uh, concerning uh, in-house patients, uh, whereas the ambulatory uh, outpatients with hemotherapy are not included, at least uh, concerning general type of cancer, are not included in the guidelines uh, for primary thromboprophylaxis. Could you comment a little bit?
2: With pleasure. I think that has to do with habits of doctors, which can be very difficult to change. Oncologists, maybe more than, than hematologists who, who work a lot with coagulation, they are reluctant to introduce a VTE prophylaxis. They, in my view, are much easier in giving a relatively potent and efficient chemotherapeutic agent to a patient, even by IV infusion or subcutaneously long before they might agree to giving a low molecular weight heparin to their patient on a longer basis. This is a perception on my side, but there's actually also some some published data on this. And I think once a patient is in the hospital, then doctors can more readily accept the fact that they need a VTE prophylaxis, whereas once they're on an ambulatory basis, then they're hesitant to do so. This in part also may have to do with the fact that low molecular weight heparins had to be injected. And uh, now with the, the direct oral anticoagulants, we have alternatives to that. But that, in my perception, has not led to a generalized acceptance of the fact that VTE risk in cancer patients can be so high that it may necessitate or may justify a primary VTE prophylaxis.
1: Yes, that is uh, correct. In my experience, also oncologists have been more reserved concerning this issue, but uh, they are urged now by, for example, the guidelines of the American Society of Clinical Oncology to at least inform their patients on the risks for thrombosis, and under certain circumstances, On the tumor type and uh, prediction risk with the Corolla score, (laughs) primary prophylaxis is indicated either with low-molecular weight heparins or with uh, the newer direct anticoagulants. But let's go uh, back to the established thrombosis. You have a tumor patient and he gets a thrombosis. So we have to treat him. And traditionally, low-molecular weight heparins Already from the time of the milestone study, the CLOT study more than 30 years ago, uh, was the medicament of first choice uh, on that. In the meantime, the newer diorganic coagulants came in uh, use and uh, they were initially tested in the registry studies uh, in general patients and then successfully at the end in focused patients with cancer the disease and uh, they were efficient and safe now how do we choose uh, do we give these patients uh, low molecular heparins or do we give them doax what is your experience on that class
2: well i criticize the oncologists for being slow in changing their habits i have to admit i'm equally slow in changing certain habits I'm a great fan of the CLOT study from 2003. It was designed as a superiority study. It looked at recurrent VTE and the relevant parameter were symptomatic VTE. All of the studies done in direct oral anticoagulants were laid out as non-inferiority studies. They also included incidental VTE, and there were several other factors that make these studies difficult to, to compare. To make a long message short, in my personal view, low molecular weight heparins are still the prime modality to treat cancer-associated VTE. I'm well aware of the guidelines and the meta-analyses which now say that DOAX treat cancer associated VTE better than than the low molecular weight heparins at the price of having an increased bleeding risk. Again, there's a strategy from the author of the CLOT study, Agnes Lee, which I find very usable and which I try to adhere to, where you have a three-staged approach. First, you look at bleeding risk. What is the bleeding risk in my patient? You look at the medical interaction, so the interactions with potential tumor therapy. Would there be a problem? And the third is also the the tumor type that is involved. In case of gastrointestinal or urologic cancers, cancer forms which were mostly excluded or underrepresented in the DoE cancer-associated thrombotic studies. So, if any of these three aspects are met, then you go fall back on low molecular weight heparins. If they are not met, then you can uh, certainly uh, start with a direct oral anticoagulant of your choice. So that's the approach that I adapt or that I use
1: from Agnes Lee. That's correct. That proposal from Agnes Lee is very illustrative and very easy to digest and also easy to apply. But still, you have patients uh, which cannot come under the same condition Uh, What do you do with thrombocytopenia, for example? What do you do with the duration of the study? How long uh, do you treat with low molecular weight heparins? The CLOT study did not have extensive durations. How do you handle this?
2: Well, the treatment duration is an excellent question. For six months, we have solid data, three to six months in CLOT study and also in in the DOAC studies. After six months, we just don't know as Armand Trousseau, who is basically the founder of the cancer-associated thrombosis, said doctors should not hesitate to admit their ignorance. We don't know what the optimum treatment duration is, period. So we can adapt, we can talk to our patients, we can include patient preference. We can look at, for instance, dose-reducing steps. For instance, in the CLOT study, the original low molecular weight heparin dose was 200 international units and later on you went down to 150. Similarly, there is data outside the cancer setting where for apixaban and rivaroxaban, one can use half therapeutic levels at an acceptable risk benefit for bleeding and thrombosis prevention ratios. Maybe, I don't know, maybe these reduced doses will also uh, work in a cancer setting. We don't know, there are studies ongoing which might help us in that.
1: Yes, but in general, I think uh, though that as long as the tumor is present, treatment should continue.
2: I agree, treatment should continue, but at which dose? That is the point I'd like to make. Maybe we do not need a therapeutic dose again i don't have proof of that in the cancer setting for the direct oral anticoagulants but it would be a very interesting uh, target or interesting study context to look at
1: now i would like to touch this point uh, before uh, we are coming to the end of the podcast two marginal issues which seem interesting uh, more and more literature is coming in publication lately on the issue of oncocardiology, That is, uh, patients uh, with tumour having cardiological heart disease. For example, a typical patient with heart disease who would need anticoagulation is uh, an atrial fibrillation patient. And we know, or at least the literature reports, that tumour treatments uh, and uh, tumour itself are considered to be triggering factors for atrial fibrillation. Now, how do you treat atrial fibrillation in a tumor patient? Uh, Do you give him low molecular weight heparin, as you do uh, because of the tumor, or do you give him uh, DOACs, which is the standard choice for atrial fibrillation outside the tumor spectrum? But still, patients treated with DOACs have some restrictions, Concerning choice of drug because uh, gastrointestinal tumors are excluded from that indication or patients with a bleeding tendency uh, are excluded from that indication. So uh, what do we do is the issue. We don't know because concerning atrial fibrillation in tumor patients is uh, an open issue still. We don't have the focus. Uh, prospective studies that can handle these. Could you tell us a few words on that, uh, Lars, please? I will try.
2: So your question was how do we treat these patients? I would say very carefully. So increased supervision, increased surveillance, I think, is the, the A and O in these patients. Renal insufficiency is more frequent in cancer patients and plays a role in DOAC treatment. So we need to look at these factors We need to look at the the liver metabolism, DOAC plus single cancer therapy. There's a a paper from Chian Ai from Vienna, states that in very few instances will there be a relevant interaction between the direct oral anticoagulant and the tumor therapy. But my response to that would be... As soon as there are other CYP3A4 metabolites or metabolized drugs in the equation, so if these patients start to get psychotherapies or neuroleptics or sleeping medications that may interact with the cytochrome P450 pathways, then we may be more prone to measure an anti-factor 10A or an anti-factor 2A, depending on the DOAC that we use. So we just need to be more aware of what's going on in our patient. We need to survey the relevant parameters, including uh, renal and liver function, and also the interactions which may occur on a
1: CYP3A4 uh, or other basis. Thank you for that. We don't have much time left, but uh, I would like just uh, to... Touch relative subject which is uh, not relevant anymore, in my opinion, but you might have a different view on that. Uh, the possible anti-tumor effect of uh, anticoagulation. At the time of the CLOT study, 20 years ago, there was a possible anti-tumor effect reported in patients who had not extensive disease. Uh, later on, focused studies did not support this, Did not confirm this and the discussion on the anti-tumor effect was abandoned. Could you tell us in one sentence, please, because we are short of time, do you agree with that or do you see other ways out of that?
2: Again, in that I am reluctant to change my habits. I do see a potential role for low molecular weight heparins in inflammatory. Conditions So as soon as you have cytokines around, I think the low molecular weight heparins may be helpful. I agree with your assessment that around the 2000s, there were meta-analyses clearly showing an improved survivals. In the 2010s, these meta-analyses started to change their formulations. And in 2016, I believe I saw a meta-analysis that says that the survival effect can no longer be shown but that an anti-metastatic effect may still be there. I think the the context has changed, whereas previously patients weren't exposed to low molecular weight heparins. Nowadays, they much more are. This may be a confounder that we lose this effect in the meta-analyses. The proper study I haven't seen to prove the yes or no. I'm a big fan of low molecular weight heparins based on the fact that they are a mixture of, uh, of molecules which have all kinds of binding targets, I like to believe that they do play a role, particularly in inflammatory or inflammation
1: associated conditions. Thank you, Lars, for that. So we have come to the end of this podcast. Before we close, I would like to give you two key takeaways mm-hmm. to keep in mind. First, heparins and or DOACs are safe and efficient in treating thrombosis in cancer patients. And second, primary thromboprophylaxis is efficient in selected cancer patients, but still remains a matter of debate for the majority of the tumors. Lars, would you like to add a last word?
2: I completely agree with your conclusions. In addition, I would like to focus on the importance of talking with your patients, including patient preference in the treatment plan. And by doing that, I think we can greatly improve the quality of life in a cancer-associated context.
1: Thank you, Lars, for this uh, contribution in the discussion. Thank you, listeners, for being with us today. Thank you
0: we hope you enjoyed the second podcast episode in this series on thrombosis in various clinical conditions if you like this episode look out for more episodes in the series on the core to add medical education channel there are three other episodes in the series where professor Tsakiris leads the expert discussion on anticoagulation venous thromboembolism and perioperative thromboprophylaxis Also, don't forget to rate this episode on the CORE2AD website and share our podcast on social media or with your colleagues. Thank you for listening and see you next time. This podcast is an initiative of CORE2AD and developed by Hemostasis Connect, a group of international experts working in the field of hematology. The views expressed are the personal opinions of the experts, and they do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' organizations or the rest of the hemostasis connect group. For expert disclosures on any conflict of interest, please visit the Ed website.